Section two of Beacon Lights of History, Volume twelve American Leaders by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Andrew Jackson, Part two. Jackson forthwith issued his bulletins or proclamations in a truly Napoleonic style to the inhabitants of Louisiana to rally to the defense of New Orleans, which he saw would probably be the next object of attack on the part of the British. On the 2nd of December he personally reached that city and made preparations for the expected assault, and, ably assisted by Edward Livingston, the most prominent lawyer of the city, enlisted for the defense the French Creoles, the American residents, and a few Spaniards. New Orleans was a prize which the English coveted, and to possess it that government had willingly expended a million of pounds sterling. The city not only controlled the commerce of the Mississippi, but in it were stored 150,000 bales of cotton and 810,000 hogsheads of sugar, all of which the English government expected to seize. It contained at that time about 20,000 people, less than half of whom were whites, and these chiefly French Creoles, besides a floating population of sailors and traders. New Orleans is built on a bend in the Mississippi in the shape of a horseshoe, about 100 miles from where by a sinuous southeasterly course the river empties into the Gulf of Mexico. At the city the river was about a mile wide, with a current of four miles an hour, and back of the town was a swamp, draining to the north into Lake Pontchartrain, and to the east into Lake Borg, which opens out into the Gulf east of the city. It was difficult for sailing vessels at that time to ascend the river one hundred miles against the current, if forts and batteries were erected on its banks, and a sort of back entrance was afforded to the city for small vessels through lakes and lagoons at a comparatively short distance. On one of these lakes, Lake Borg, a flotilla of light gunboats was placed for defense, under the command of Lieutenant Jones, but on December 14th an overpowering force of small British vessels dispersed the American squadron, and on the 22nd about 1,500 regulars, the picked men of the British army, fresh from European victories under Wellington, contrived to find their way unperceived through the swamps and lagoons to the belts of plantations between the river and swamps about nine miles below New Orleans. When the news arrived of the loss of the gunboats, which made the enemies the master of Lake Bourne, a panic spread over the city, for the forces of the enemy were greatly exaggerated. But Jackson was equal to the emergency, though having but just arrived. He coolly adopted the most vigorous measures and restored confidence. Times of confusion, difficulty, and danger were always his best opportunities. He proclaimed martial law, he sent in all directions for reinforcements, he called upon the people to organize for defense, he released and enlisted the convicts, and accepted the proffered services of Jean Lafitte, the ex-pirate, or rather smuggler, of the Gulf, with two companies of his ex-buccaneers. He appealed to the noble-hearted, generous, free men of color to enlist, and the whole town was instantly transformed into a military camp. Within a fortnight he had five thousand men, one-fifth regulars, and the rest militia. General Jackson's address to his soldiers was spirited but inflated, encouraging and boastful, with a great patriotic ring, and, of course, effective. The population of the city was united in resolving to make a sturdy defense. Had the British marched as soon as they landed, they probably would have taken the city in the existing consternation. But they waited for larger forces from their ships, which carried 6,000 troops, and in their turn exaggerated the number of the defenders, which at first were only about 2,000 badly frightened men. The delay was a godsend to the Americans, who now learned the strength of the enemy. 
on the twenty-third as always eager to be at his enemy and moving with his characteristic energy jackson sent a small force down to make a night attack on the british camp also a schooner heavily armed with cannon to cooperate from the river it was a wild and inconsequent fight but it checked the advance of the british who now were still more impressed with the need of reinforcements it aroused the confidence and fighting spirit of the americans and it enabled jackson to take up a defensive line behind an old canal extending across the plain from river to swamp and give him time to fortify it at once he raised a formidable barricade of mud and timber and strengthened it with cotton bales from the neighboring plantations the cotton however proved rather a nuisance than a help as it took fire under the attack and smoked annoying the men the fortifications of cotton bales were only a romance of the war on the twenty fifth arrived sir edward pakenham brother-in-law of wellington and an able soldier to take command and on the twenty eighth the british attacked the extemporized but strong breastworks confident of success but the sharpshooters from the backwoods of tennessee under carroll and from kentucky under coffee who fought with every advantage protected by their mud defenses were equally confident the slaughter of the british troops utterly unprotected though brave and gallant was terrible and they were repulsed preparations were now made for a still more vigorous systematic and general assault and a force was sent across the river to menace the city from that side on the eighth of january the decisive battle was fought which extinguished forever all dreams of the conquest of america on the part of the british general pakenham who commanded the advancing columns in person was killed and their authorities state their loss to have been two thousand killed wounded and missing the american loss was at eight killed and thirteen wounded it was a rash presumption for the british to attack a fortified entrenchment ten feet high in some places and ten feet thick with detached redoubts to flank it and three thousand men behind it the conflict was not strictly a battle not like an encounter in the open field where the raw troops under jackson most of them militia would have stood no chance with the veterans whom wellington had led to victory and glory jackson's brilliant defense at new orleans was admirably planned and energetically executed it had no effect on the war for the treaty of peace although not yet heard of had been signed weeks before but it enabled america to close the conflict with a splendid success which offset the disasters and mistakes of the northern campaigns naturally it was magnified into a great military exploit and raised the fame of jackson to such a height all over the country that nothing could ever afterwards weaken his popularity no matter what he did lawful or unlawful he was a victor over the indians and over the english and all his arbitrary acts were condoned by an admiring people who had but few military heroes to boast of his successes had a bad effect on jackson himself he came to feel that he had a right to ride over precedence and law when it seemed to him expedient he set up his will against constituted authorities and everybody who did not endorse his measures he regarded as a personal enemy to be crushed if possible it was never said of him that he was unpatriotic in his intentions only that he was willful vindictive and ignorant from the eighth of january eighteen fifteen to the day of his death he was the most popular man that this country ever saw excepting perhaps washington and lincoln the central figure in american politics with prodigious influence even after he had finally retired from public life immediately after the defense of new orleans the legislatures of different states and congress itself passed grateful resolutions for his military services and the nation heaped all the honor on the hero that was in its power to give medals swords and rewards and congress remitted a fine which had been imposed by judge hall in new orleans for contempt of court 
jackson's severity in executing six militiamen for mutiny was approved generally as a wholesome exercise of military discipline and all his acts were glorified wherever he went there was a round of festivities he began to be talked about as soon as the war was closed as a candidate for the presidency although when the idea was first proposed to him he repelled it with genuine indignation scarcely had the british troops been withdrawn from the gulf of mexico to fight more successfully at waterloo when jackson was called to put an end to the seminole war in florida which spanish territory he occupied on the ground of self-defense the indians seminoles and creeks with many runaway negroes had been pillaging the border of georgia jackson drove them off seized the spanish fort on Apalachee bay and again took possession of pensacola on the plea that the spanish officials were aiding the indians it required all the skill of the government at washington to defend his despotic acts for he was as complete an autocrat in his limited sphere as caesar or napoleon the only limits he regarded were the limits to his power but in whatever he did he had a firm conviction that he was right even john quincy adams justified his acts in florida when his enemies were loud in their complaints of his needless executions especially of two british traitors arbuthnot and amberter whom he had court-martialed and shot as abettors of the indians he had invaded the territory of a neutral power and driven off its representatives but everything was condoned and when shortly after florida became a united states territory by purchase from spain he was made its first governor a new field for him but an appointment which president monroe felt it necessary to make in april eighteen twenty one having resigned his commission in the army jackson left nashville with his family to take up his residence in pensacola enchanted with its climates and fruits and flowers its refreshing sea breezes and its beautiful situation in spite of hot weather as governor of florida he was invested with extraordinary powers indeed there was scarcely any limit to them except that he had no power to levy and collect taxes and seize the property of the mixed races who dwelt in the land of oranges and flowers it would appear that aside from arbitrary acts he did all he could for the good of the territory under the influence of his wife a christian woman whom he indulged in all things especially in shutting up grog shops putting a stop to play-going and securing an outward respect for the sabbath his term of office however was brief and as his health was poor for he was never vigorous in november of the same year he gladly returned to nashville and about this time built his well-known residence the hermitage as a farmer he was unusually successful making agriculture lucrative even with slave labor jackson had now become a prominent candidate for the presidency and as a part of the political plan he was in eighteen twenty three made senator from tennessee and congress where he served parts of two terms without however distinguishing himself as a legislator he made but few speeches and these were short but cast his vote on occasions of importance voting against a reduction of duty on iron and woolen and cotton goods against imprisonment for debt and favoring some internal improvements in eighteen twenty four he wrote a letter advocating a careful tariff so far as it should afford revenues for the national defense and to pay off the national debt and give a proper distribution of our labor but a tariff to enrich capitalists at the expense of the laboring classes he always abhorred the administration of james monroe in two full terms from eighteen seventeen to eighteen twenty five had not been marked by any great events or popular movements of a special historical interest it was the era of good feeling the times were placid and party animosities had nearly subsided the opening of the slavery discussions resulted in the missouri compromise of eighteen twenty and the irritations of that great topic were allayed for the time 
like all his predecessors after washington monroe had been successively a diplomatist and secretary of state and the presidency seemed to fall to him as a matter of course he was a most respectable man although not of commanding abilities and discharged his duties creditably in the absence of exciting questions the only event of his administration which had a marked influence on the destinies of the united states was the announcement that the future colonization of the country by any european state would not be permitted this is called the monroe doctrine and had the warm support of webster and other leading statesmen it not only proclaimed the idea of complete american independence of all foreign powers but opposed all interference of european states in american affairs the ultimate influence of the application of this doctrine cannot be exaggerated in importance whether it originated with the president or not monroe was educated for the bar but he was neither a good speaker nor a ready writer nor was he a man of extensive culture or attainments the one great idea attributed to him was america for the americans he was succeeded however by a man of fine attainments and large experience who had passed through the great offices of state with distinguished credit in february eighteen twenty four jackson was almost unanimously nominated for the presidency by the democratic party through the convention in harrisburg and john c calhoun was nominated for the vice presidency jackson's main rivals in the election which followed were john quincy adams and henry clay both of whom had rendered great civil services and were better fitted for the post but jackson was the most popular and he obtained ninety-nine electoral votes adams eighty-four and clay thirty-seven no one having a majority the election was thrown into the house of representatives clay who never liked nor trusted jackson threw his influence in favor of adams and adams was elected by the vote of thirteen states jackson and his friends always maintained that he was cheated out of the election that adams and clay made a bargain between themselves which seemed to be confirmed by the fact that clay was made secretary of state in adams's cabinet although this was a natural enough sequence of clay's throwing his political strength to make adams president jackson returned wrathful and disappointed to his farm but amid boisterous demonstrations of respect wherever he went if he had not cared much about the presidency before he was now determined to achieve it and to crush his opponents whom he promptly regarded as enemies john quincy adams entered upon office in eighteen twenty five free from personal obligations and partisan entanglements but with an unfriendly congress this however was not much of a consequence since no great subjects were before congress for discussion was a period of great tranquillity fitted for the development of the peaceful arts and of internal improvements in the land rather than of genius in the presidential chair not one public event of great importance occurred although many commercial treaties were signed and some internal improvements were made mr adams lived in friendly relations with his cabinet composed of able men and he was generally respected for the simplicity of his life and the conscientious discharge of his routine duties he was industrious and painstaking rising early in the morning and retiring early in the evening he was not popular being cold and austere in manner but he had a lofty self-respect disdaining to conciliate foes or reward friends a new england puritan of the severest type sternly incorruptible learned without genius eloquent without rhetoric experienced without wisdom religious without orthodoxy and liberal-minded with strong prejudices perhaps the most marked thing in the political history of that administration was the strife for the next presidency and the beginning of that angry and bitter conflict between politicians which had no cessation until the civil war the sessions of congress were occupied in the manufacture of political capital for a cloud had arisen in the political heavens portending storms and animosities and the discussion of important subjects of national scope such as had not agitated the country before 
pertaining to finances, to tariffs, to constitutional limitations, to retrenchments and innovations. There arose new political parties, or rather a great movement, extending to every town and hamlet, to give a new impetus to the democratic sway. The leaders of this movement were the great antagonists of Clay and Webster, a new class of politicians like Benton, Amos Kendall, Martin Van Buren, Duff Green, W. B. Lewis, and others. A new era of politics was inaugurated, with all the then novel but now customary machinery of local clubs, partisan campaign newspapers, and the organized use of pledges and promises of appointments to office to reward workers. This system had been efficiently perfected in New York State under Mr. Van Buren and other leaders, but now it was brought into federal politics and the whole country was stirred into a fever heat of party strife. In a political storm, therefore, Jackson was elected and commenced his memorable reign in 1829, John Quincy Adams retiring to his farm in disgust and wrath. The new president was carried into office on an avalanche of Democratic voters, receiving 261 electoral votes, while Adams had only 83, notwithstanding his long public services and his acknowledged worth. This was too great a disappointment for the retiring statesman to bear complacently, or even philosophically. He gave vent to his irritated feelings in unbecoming language, exaggerating the ignorance of Jackson and his general unfitness for the high office, in this, however, betraying an estimate of the incoming president which was common among educated and conservative men. I well remember at college the contempt which the president and all the professors had for the western warrior. It was generally believed by literary men that old Hickory could scarcely write his name. But the speeches of Jackson were always to the point, if not studied and elaborate, while his messages were certainly respectable, though rather too long. It is generally supposed that he furnished the rough drafts to his few intimate friends, who recast and polished them, while some think that William Lewis, Amos Kendall, and others wrote the whole of them, as well as all his public papers. In reading the early letters of Jackson, however, it is clear that they are anything but illiterate, whatever mistakes in spelling and grammatical errors there may be. His ideas were distinct, his sentiments unmistakable, and although he was fond of a kind of spread-eagle eloquence, his views on public questions were generally just and vigorously expressed. A Tennessee general, brought up with horse-jockeys, gamblers, and cock-fighters, and who never had even a fair common-school education, could not be expected to be very accomplished in the arts of composition, whatever talents and good sense he naturally may have had. Certain it is that Jackson's mind was clear and his convictions were strong upon the national policy to be pursued by him, and if he opposed banks and tariffs it was because he believed that their influence was hostile to the true interests of the country. He doubtless well understood the issues of great public questions, only his view of them was contrary to the views of moneyed men and bankers and the educated classes of his day, generally. It is to be remarked, however, that the views he took on questions of political economy are now endorsed by many able college professors and some American manufacturers who are leading public opinion in opposition to tariffs for protection and in the direction of free trade. The first thing for Jackson to do after his inauguration was to select his cabinet. It was not a strong one. He wanted clerks, not advisers. He was all-sufficient to himself. He rarely held a cabinet meeting. In a very short time, this cabinet was dissolved by a scandal. General Eaton, Secretary of War, had married the daughter of a tavern keeper, who was remarkable for her wit and social brilliancy. The aristocratic wives of the cabinet ministers would not associate with her, and the president took the side of the neglected woman, in accordance with his chivalric nature. His error was in attempting to force his cabinet to accord to her a social position, a matter which naturally belonged to women to settle. 
so bitter was the quarrel and so persistent was the president in attempting to produce harmony in his cabinet on a mere social question that the ministers resigned rather than fight so obstinate and irascible man as jackson in a matter which was outside his proper sphere of action End of section two.